Hi guys, before we start the show, I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate, so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service, hit them up through our link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, and you get a free month, including one free book of your choice. Alternatively, you can support us directly. We have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories, and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show, access to our Discord, and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries, you can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends, and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. As lonely freight trains clattered through the cold nights of Cleveland, metallic scrapes entwining with the industrial din of the factories on the edges of the Cuyahoga River, men, women and children tucked themselves into bed in ramshackle housing built from scavenged wood, cardboard and corrugated steel. Their home was a barren stretch of disused land known as Kingsbury Run. Among weeds, wild grass and decaying refuse, a shantytown built out of necessity and desperation had sprung up housing those driven to the fringes of society, gripped by the poverty of the Great Depression. Living among the squalor was not easy, even less so with someone skulking in the shadows, holding a penchant for decapitation. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Welcome, Season 2, Episode 12 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben, and I hope this finds you all in great health. We are really going to just jump straight into this one as well. It's a big one. I just want to say a quick thank you to Jim, who's one of the podcast supporters over on Patreon, for suggesting this episode. He's given me some really great suggestions in the past, and he threw this one out when I asked about upcoming episodes over there. So, thanks very much, Jim. This is The Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, Cleveland's Torso Murders. Throughout the 1920s, the city of Cleveland, Ohio, boomed. The city's economy was largely dominated by the manufacture of steel, iron, cars and their respective replacement parts, chemicals and textiles, and employment was relatively high. As the sixth largest city in the entire US, it was a city on the up. Two entrepreneurs, Brothers with the focus on real estate, Oris Paxton and Mantis James Van Sweringen took note of this potential of Cleveland to house an emerging, sizable middle class, and they wasted no time in building a suburban dream. They planned and oversaw construction of homes and parks around new, modern, private and public schools, complete with tree-lined streets. Noting that a key part of a successful suburb was its transport links to central Cleveland, They purchased the Nickel Plate Railroad and built up a public transportation network to cater for both the workforce and commercial aspirations of Clevelanders, culminating in the construction of the Cleveland Union Terminal in Public Square in the heart of the downtown area. It was a grand building with extravagant ceilings and art deco finishings, Terminal Tower, a large skyscraper standing at 235 metres was the second largest building in the world when construction was completed in 1930. At a cost of $179 million, it was a serious monument to the industrial boom and as both commercial centre and transport hub, it heralded a sign of great things to come for the future of Cleveland. This opulence, however, was not felt by all residents. Despite this prosperous facade, A gradual decline of quality of life and employment had slowly started creeping up unawares since 1927, and by October of 1929, the Great Depression had officially struck nationwide, turning this gradual slide into a severe downward spiral throughout both Cleveland and the country. One obvious reflection of this decline could be seen in the work undertaken by the associated charities, a community-driven and funded group in Cleveland who were helping those in need with financial assistance. In 1929, Associated Charities had 712 families officially on their books. By 1932, this number had increased to 26,000. 
despite work initiatives offering low-paid menial labour for up to three days per week. A 1931 census found that almost 50% of the Cleveland population were unemployed or working low-paid, low-hour jobs, unable to support their families. Although many of the hardest hit were already struggling immigrant and African-American communities who, following the crash of industry, now suffered from up to 90% unemployment rates, the middle class that just a handful of years prior were looking forward to a bright future now found themselves being hit just as hard. Their children were being taught by unpaid teachers and at times being sent home for not having shoes. Entire families were being fed for up to two weeks on one day's pay from the working initiatives of $4.50 and what started as small soup kitchens in 1927 had evolved into an industrial affair with food and clothing now being distributed by local charities as an accepted norm. In 1933, the Cuyahoga County Relief Administration was set up, enveloping the associated charities, and with it, they took on board the 33,000 families it was officially propping up. By 1935, this number had more than doubled to 76,000. In 1931, there were 9,300 evictions citywide, a number that too had doubled since 1930 and by 1934 it rose to 13,000. Times were indeed tough and civil unrest was high. Workers' strikes and protests were a common occurrence and they were not always peaceful. As for the Van Swearingens, their dream lay in tatters. Several of their railroads had fallen to bankruptcy and they had defaulted on a $48 million loan from JP Morgan. With little to show financially from their promising earlier years, both men died within two years of each other. At the time of their deaths in 34 and 36, their net worth had fallen from $3 billion to just 3,000. With poverty and homelessness at such a high, shantytowns had risen up. Known as Hoovervilles, a name they took from Herbert Hoover, the president in office at the time, These were ramshackle enclaves of scavenged wood and steel, closely packed and full of a population driven by financial desperation. Two of the largest Hoovervilles in Cleveland were known as Kingsbury Run and Whiskey Island. They were a harsh representation of an economic situation that gripped the US population and squeezed tighter as each month passed. Kingsbury Run was a dark and dangerous place populated by the poor, homeless, dispossessed and those hit hardest by the Great Depression. It was a refuse-filled area of land on the eastern side of Cleveland, nestled on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. In reality, it was little more than a dumping ground for the city's waste, but it had land enough and so the population grew. In the west was an area known as the Roaring Third, a den of illegality, home to many of the city's bars, brothels and gambling houses. It offered both a refuge for some and a problem for the authorities. It's safe to say that the times were hard and financial instability was cutting deep into the population of Cleveland as it was around the whole of the US. In this atmosphere of severe poverty, decaying refuse, civil unrest and desperation, there was another, more violent nightmare coming over the horizon. It was within Kingsbury Run that a man who became known as the Mad Butcher was preparing to throw down his violent and bloody stool. On September 5th, 1934, 34-year-old Frank Lagasse was searching by the banks of Lake Erie for driftwood. He noticed something bobbing in the water. On closer inspection, Lagasse realised he had discovered something very grim indeed. What he originally thought to be a tree trunk turned out to be the headless, limbless lower half of the torso of a woman, her legs removed from the knees. Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted in reports that her body had been treated or preserved with some kind of oil that had given the skin a leathery appearance. With so little of the woman's body found, however, it was impossible to both identify her or to give a confident cause of death the only notable detail about the victim being that she was in her 30s. Her body was estimated as being in the water for up to three or four months, though with the preservative treatment, this was difficult for the police to nail down with any certainty. 
This unnamed woman was never identified, nor was the remainder of her corpse ever found. She became known as the Lady of the Lake, and two years later, victim zero. For now, however, she was simply the victim of a gruesome murder that left no leads to follow. For the next year, her remains faded into an obscure memory, the perpetrator long forgotten. Things were far from quiet in the streets of Kingsbury Run, but at least no more pieces of bodies were found. That was, until just over one year later, on the 23rd of September 1935. Two young boys, James Wagner and Peter Pastora, were playing catch atop an embankment known as Jackass Hill in southern Kingsbury Run. One made an overthrow and the ball careered down the slope. The boys chased it down the hill, stopping at the bottom to root round in the bushes where they had last seen it as it bounced and disappeared from view. Rather than a ball, however, what they found was so traumatic that the first boy to discover the body leapt backwards and dragged the second over to the scene, speechless. In the bushes lay the decapitated body of a man, naked except from his socks. After the police arrived, they began the search to find the victim's head and instead found a second body around 30 feet away, once again decapitated. The police continued the search and found both heads partially buried, the first around 20 feet away from his body and the second around 75 feet away. They also found a metal bucket that contained a torch and an oily substance that they had mixed with traces of blood left on the rim. Once again, the coroner Pierce was given the duty of determining cause of death, and his findings were macabre in the least. Aside from the initial obvious decapitation of both bodies, Pierce found that the first body had rope burns around his wrist, and that the second had hardened skin that had become discoloured. Upon closer examination, they found his body hair had been burnt away and thus concluded that appearances together with certain findings to indicate that this body after death was saturated with oil and fire applied. This burning however was only sufficient to scorch, hence the peculiar condition of the skin. He also found that both men had had their penises removed. The first was a white male, 5 foot 11 and weighing 150 pounds in his 20s with blue grey eyes and brown hair. He was presumed to have been dead for two to three days. The second was a white male, 40 to 45 years old, 5 foot 6, 165 pounds with dark brown hair. He had been lying in the bushes a while longer, with initial estimates placing his death seven to ten days prior, though this was later revised to three to four weeks. In both cases, cause of death was attributed to death by decapitation, hemorrhage and shock. This meant that the victims had been alive when they were decapitated. Despite what would have been massive blood loss, there was no blood found at the scene aside from the small amount found on the metal bucket. Both bodies appeared to have been drained and then cleaned before being cast into the bushes. This time, the police did manage to identify one of the bodies from his fingerprints. The first man found was positively identified as Edward Andrassy, the 28-year-old son of Hungarian immigrants. His father and brother were called into the morgue and they gave a positive ID on Edward, who they had last seen four days earlier in perfect health. Edward Andrassy had led a somewhat colourful life and was known to frequently hang around the bars of the Roaring Third. Rumours flew around that Edward was bisexual and his sister was aware that he had had run-ins with mobsters in the past. Police called him a snotty punk and his own father commented that he had hung around people of questionable character. The police therefore found themselves dealing with a victim who could, in all likelihood, have been killed by any one of a large number of people, leaving many leads which of course were entirely fruitless. The second body was proving to be quite the opposite of Andrassy. It was never identified and simply chalked up as victim one. Despite some of the obvious similarities, the police were yet to tie the two murders to the earlier discovery of the Lady of the Lake. Though they had linked Andrassy and Victim 1, deciding that they probably knew one another and were killed by the same person. The dust eventually settled and investigations ceased after they had effectively led the police nowhere. A far more interest in the press than a couple of murders was the interesting new addition to the Cleveland police ranks 
when the by now infamous Elliot Ness was called in by the new mayor of Cleveland, Harold Burton, to clean up crime and corruption in the city. Elliot Ness rode into Cleveland fresh on the coattails of his successes fighting crime lord Al Capone, now equally infamous for his activities as co-founder of the Chicago Outfit, an Italian-American organised crime organisation who rose to power during the period of Prohibition. Ness made quick time in Cleveland, cleaning up the police force of corruption, attacking the gambling dens and initiating new programmes and concepts in the police force, ensuring the police were clearly represented on the streets by introducing marked police cars and revamping police academy training to better equip new police with the realities of working on the force. As Ness made headlines in the local press almost daily, the people of Cleveland may have been forgiven in thinking that their streets were on the way to becoming safer. That, however, was soon to change. In the early hours of Sunday, January the 26th, 1936, people in Kingsbury Run lay in their beds trying to sleep. This was made difficult for some as the barks of a dog punctured the cold winter night. Later that morning, local butcher and owner of the White Front Meat Market, Charles Page, was startled by a woman insisting that she had found a basket of what she believed to be hams was lying outside the Hart Manufacturing Building on East 21st Place. The woman had alerted Charles Page, concerned that his butcher shop might have been robbed, and so he accompanied her back to the basket. As it turned out, the items were not quite hams, rather... The first item Page removed from the basket was an arm wrapped in newspaper. The police were called immediately and Lieutenant Harvey Weitzel, Lieutenant David Cowles, Sergeant Hogan and Detectives Shibley and Waxman promptly arrived on the scene and discovered several pieces of a human body wrapped tightly in the basket and nearby several more pieces were stuffed into two burlap sacks. Over the next ten days, the search turned up around half of an entire human female body most of which had been left in a nearby vacant lot on Orange Avenue, along with a set of white cotton underwear wrapped in newspapers. The barking dog turned out to belong to James Marco, who provided the police with the time of the dog's apparent distress at around 2.30am. This at least gave the detectives a window of time for which to investigate further. Outside of this clue, however, Little information was forthcoming until the body was identified via her fingerprints as local woman Florence Palillo. Florence was known locally as Flo, was 42 years old and worked as a barmaid, waitress and had previously been arrested on several occasions for working as a prostitute. Her ex-husband gave a statement to police telling them of how they had married for six years However, Flo's drinking problem had caused rifts in the relationship that were eventually too great for the couple to overcome. She split with her husband after six years of marriage, intending to straighten herself out. However, she wound up instead existing on the fringes of society, living hand to mouth, with much of her money being sucked up by her ongoing and ceaseless problem with drink that had led her to violent outbursts. She had had several relationships since her split, many of them winding up abusive. On February the 7th, the remainder of Flo's body parts were found, minus the head, scattered across a fence behind a vacant house. Along with these parts was the upper half of her torso, from which Coroner Pierce was able to confirm that Flo had died, once again, from decapitation. The police traced forensic evidence left on the scene, but it all led nowhere, Flo's friends were equally unhelpful in uncovering any new evidence. Once again, the dust settled on the murder, but once again, the quiet period would not last. Despite all the problems facing Cleveland throughout the 30s, it was a city that just about clung onto its successful facade. The recently completed construction works and tree-lined suburbs belied the reality. However, The shanty towns and slums were more than a clear reminder to any who ventured just a few blocks from this commercial front. In June of 1936, the Republican National Convention rolled into town, bringing with it a host of delegates who would of course not take in the sights on the banks of the filthy Cuyahoga River, flowing just behind the shimmering urban developments they were instead presented with. At 8.30am on the morning of Friday, June 5th, Just three days before the start of the convention, 
two young boys aged 11 and 13 were skipping out on school to go fishing. As they approached the East 55th Bridge, they spotted something in the bush and prodded it with their fishing poles. Wrapped in a pair of their trousers, to their surprise, was the head of a man. Shocked and traumatised by the sight, the boys ran home, where they hid until one of the boys' mothers returned home from work, eventually allowing them to alleviate themselves of the grim discovery. At first they were too terrified to cooperate with the police, refusing to lead the police back to the site. But after some convincing, they took the police to recover the head and begin the search for the remainder of the man's body. The next day, the body was found in what appeared to be a direct affront to the police. It had been dumped in some bushes directly in front of the Nickel Plate Police Department. The victim was 20 to 25 years old, thought to have been murdered two days before its discovery and had been drained of blood and cleaned. Cause of death was determined by Pierce once again as decapitation. The coroner also discovered that the man had six tattoos, a cupid on an anchor, the names Helen and Paul with a dove, a butterfly, the top hat wearing cane carrying cartoon figure known as Jigs, an arrow through a heart and the initials WCG. Photographs of the tattoos were circulated around tattoo parlours throughout the country, fingerprints were taken and a plaster cast of the man's head was even taken and displayed at the Great Lakes Expo in an effort to garner information of his identity. No further information was forthcoming however and he was never identified. The body of the man was confusing for the detectives. The coroner's report stated that he was well-nourished, clean-shaven and dressed in clean, relatively new clothing. This description did not match with the poor and destitute victims that they had previously seen. This made it all the easier for police to deny what the press would not, that these murders were very likely to have all been connected. The next day, the Cleveland Press ran the headline Hunt for Fiend in Four Decapitations to an article that read Somewhere in the countless byways of the crowded southeast side detectives believe today is the grisly workshop of a human butcher who in the last ten months has carved up and decapitated four persons. Is there somewhere in the county a madman whose strange god is the guillotine or has some fantastic chemistry of the civilised mind converted him into a human butcher? Does he imagine himself a legal executioner of the French Revolution or a religious zealot saving the human race with an axe? The period of time the bodies were uncovered may have been a fudge on the part of the press, but both they and the police knew this was a story that had legs and thus the narrative of the mad butcher was thrust upon the public. Elliot Ness met with Sergeant James Hogan and head of the crime lab David Cowles to discuss the investigation of the murders. Hogan did not agree with the press and believed them to be unconnected due to their not sharing any common links in terms of motive. Jealousy, sexual deviation, revenge, none seemed to make much sense. Both Ness and Cowles, however, did agree with the press and they believed them to be connected. Ness promised Hogan more support and manpower, instructing Cowles to put his department at Hogan's disposal. Hogan would have welcomed this greatly as it would not be long before the mad butcher was to raise his head in Kingsbury Run again. The police were still working hard to track down leads from the victim, now known as the Tattooed Man, when the next call came in on the 22nd of June. Hogan had been called out to the woods near the Big Creek area of Cleveland after a teenage girl named Marie Barkley had called in the discovery of headless remains. He reported that the dead man was lying on his stomach in the nude and the head was partly wrapped up in his clothing about 15 feet north of the body. It appeared that the body had been lying at this point for at least two months and was very badly decomposed. The victim this time was a 40-year-old man and he appeared unusually to have been killed on the scene as he lay on a large pool of blood that had soaked into the ground. Coroner Pierce noted that the body was in an advanced state of decomposition with skin and flesh denuded in large areas. Rodents, maggots and the process of decomposition had removed portions of the internal viscera. The head had been separated from the body at the junction of the second and third cervical vertebrae, the ends of which bones showed no evidence of fracture. The state of decomposition was, in fact, so advanced that the head was nothing more than a skull by this point, 
which led Pierce to conclude that the body had been laying on the ground between two and three months. Hogan finally came on board with the other police, admitting that the killer seemed to have been just one man. The decapitations were showing too many signs of a skilled cut, not just a brutal severing. Ness had ensured that this line of thought was kept from the press, however, who was still enjoying their own storytelling. During June, the Republican Convention and the Great Lakes Expo was enough to keep the story from flying too high in the press, and Ness was happy to keep things that way. After the two conventions, however, there was little to shield the story from the public, and the papers had a field day when, on September the 10th, Detectives Orly May and Emil Mussey responded to a call from a man named Jerry Harris concerning something he had seen floating in a filthy pool of water on East 37th Street of Kingsbury Run that resembled a torso. The torso was removed from the creek and was sent to the county morgue. A search was immediately begun alongside of the creek and the weeds for the balance of the body. The fire rescue squad was then called and the creek was dragged with grappling hooks with a view of recovering the remainder of the body in the outlet of this creek, which comes out of a tunnel at this point, at which point the body was dumped over and small portions of flesh were found on a ledge where the torso struck when it was thrown over the edge into the creek. We were unable to recover any portions of the body with the grappling hooks, so we proceeded in using ceiling hooks and we recovered two legs below the knee. We then continued to search further and recovered the right thigh. I then searched the woods and picked up a grey felt hat, rather dirty, which appeared to have blood spots on the top and a small black band which had the label Loudy Smart Shop, Bellevue, Ohio. A blue work shirt was found wrapped in newspaper along the bank of the creek where the body was thrown into the creek. The shirt was covered with blood. As the police dredged the lake, hundreds of spectators crowded around to see what the commotion was about. A diver later found the rest of the man's body, though by now the press and locals had seen all they needed. The mad butcher of Kingsbury Run was a household name, and people talk openly about his reign of murder. The Cleveland News ran an editorial on the murders, offering a $1,000 reward for information on the man dubbed the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run, and went on, Of all the horrible nightmares come to life, the most shuddering is the fiend who decapitates his victims in the dark, dank recesses of Kingsbury Run. That a man of this nature should be permitted to work his crazed vengeance upon six people in a city the size of Cleveland should be the city's shame. No Edgar Allan Poe in his deepest opium-maddened dreams could conceive horror so painstakingly worked out. Pierce concluded that this latest victim could not be identified. However, had been in the pool for around two days, had been in his late 20s, and the cause of death had been decapitation. He also noted that the cuts had been done by a confident hand, leading speculation to a natural conclusion. Whoever was killing these people was a professional of some sort, someone who knew their way around anatomy and could handle a blade, as well as amputations. Ness could not push the murders aside any longer, and he now decided that it was time for himself to become more directly involved, along with enlisting 20 detectives to work on the case full-time. This group was headed up by Peter Merlo and Martin Zalewski. The pair of detectives worked tirelessly, calling in and interviewing every homeless person they could find in the Kingsbury Run area. By the end of investigations, they interviewed over 1,500 people alone, almost a third of interrogations undertaken by the entire department. They also took to undercover work, dressing as homeless and spending days and weeks at a time in the Kingsbury Run area or riding the rails. They hunted down rumours of men with names like The Chicken Freak, Witch Doctor and The Giant of the Run, but all had come to nothing. Meanwhile, Coroner Pierce put together a team of individuals including himself, Reuben Strauss, the pathologist who had worked on the previous six victims, County Prosecutor Cullitan, Police Chief Matavitz, Lieutenant Cowles, Inspector Joseph Sweeney and Sergeant Hogan. The team also consisted of several heads of local insane asylums and mental health hospitals. The newspapers dubbed this group the Torso Clinic and the team held meetings to discuss who the killer may have been. Whilst this may seem ordinary now, 
This was, in fact, one of the first examples of modern-day profiling. The Torso Clinic concluded that the killer was one man, that the Lady of the Lake was not to be included in the canonical murders as far as investigations were concerned, as it was judged to have been done too long before the recent spat of murders, that the killer was psychotic, but not insane, and must have been able to uphold himself in public, that he must be large and strong, as he was transporting bodies, and this along with the size 12 footprint that had earlier been found. He was likely a resident of the Kingsbury Run area and must have had a private place in which he could kill and clean the bodies. That he was picking on the lowest rungs of society, seeing them as easy prey, and that he was either a butcher, hunter, or possibly a nurse. At least, they all agreed that he had held some level of anatomical skill. They stopped just shy of calling out the possibility of him being a doctor directly, most likely a form of classist elitism. However, as the picture of the man they hunted was sketched out, detectives were to begin investigating physicians in the local area with a history of mental instability. In November, a new coroner was elected as county official named Sam Gerber. He was qualified with degrees in both medicine and law and the press saw him as another star on the county's judicial force. It was not to be long before he would have his first chance to directly investigate the mad butcher. On February 23, 1937, in a repeat of the Lady of the Lake, the upper half of a woman's body was found washed up on the shore by 156th Street. Unlike those victims before it, cause of death was determined not as decapitation. Though the head had been severed, it was judged by Coroner Gerber to have been done after death, which was no longer than four days prior. She was in her mid-twenties, weighing 120 pounds and medium brown hair. Her arms had been removed and the lower half of the torso had been cut in half and washed up separately three months later. The victim's arms, legs and head were never discovered, along with her identity. The only solid piece of information that was noted was the dirt in her lungs, suggesting that she was a resident of the city. Gerber later summarised that whoever the killer was, he was now convinced he had anatomical skill, and the search for a learned man and even the possibility he was a doctor became a serious line of inquiry. Ness contacted the local press and asked them to tone down the manner of their reports on the case, suggesting that the killer may, at this point, be killing for show, enjoying the gruesome attention he was garnering from the numerous daily headlines. They obliged to a degree, but it was to little avail, as on the 6th of June, the police were once again investigating a further body. Russell Law was the 14-year-old boy who made the grisly discovery of a skull under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. Upon searching the area, the police found a burlap sack filled with the incomplete skeletal remains of a woman in her 40s. Along with the remains was a newspaper dated June 1936, published a full year before its discovery. The victim's arms and legs were missing, however the skull showed signs of considerable dental work and through these, the woman was identified as a prostitute by the name of Rose Wallace. Rose was confirmed as having gone missing ten months previously by her son, who was convinced the remains were that of his mother, though both Gerber and Hogan were not as convinced. Merlot, however, accepted this identification. Her remains were donated to Western County Med School, and doubts remained over her identity along with the cause of death, which, due to the treatment of quicklime to the body, had been impossible to verify. One month later, with civil unrest having reached boiling point, the National Guard had been called in to take control over a bout of labour strikes. On July the 6th, Guardsman John Smith, watching over the river by the West Third Street Bridge, saw a piece of human remains floating by on the wake of a passing boat. Police were called and over the next several days they trawled the river, pulling out an almost complete body, minus the head, of a man in his mid to late thirties, approximately five feet eight inches tall and weighing 150 pounds. Gerber concluded the body to have been in the river for two to three days and the cause of death was decapitation. Perhaps tiring of his usual MO, this time the body had further grim secrets waiting to be discovered. The internal organs had all been removed along with his heart, which had been torn from his chest with little skill or precision of the usual cuts. Of course, no identity was ever found. 
Local nurses, physicians and medical students were checked out by the detectives and special surveillance warrants were issued for any that showed signs of unusual behaviour, meaning any that showed signs of illicit drug use, prostitution, alcohol or, a depressing sign of the times, homosexuality. Despite these and other tireless efforts by the detectives on the case, the trail fell as cold as the coming winter months and 1937 closed quietly for the butcher. On the 8th of April 1938, as the quiet winter slipped into spring, a young labourer on his way to work walked along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. He spotted what he initially thought was a fish, however soon discovered it to be a severed limb. For a month, the police department held hopes that it would lead to nothing more. However, these were dashed when in May, the remainder of the body found in two burlap sacks were hauled out of the river. The sacks contained the naked remains of a woman's torso that had been cut in half, her thighs and her feet. The arms, legs and head were never found. Gerber concluded the woman to have been between the age of 25 and 30, around 5 foot 3 inches tall and 120 pounds, with cause of death predictably again being decapitation, and no identity was ever realised. On the 16th of August, three scrap collectors foraging on a dump site found the torso of the next victim of the mad butcher. The torso was of a female and was twice wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and a quilt. The legs and arms were found nearby in a makeshift box and wrapped in brown butcher's paper, tied up with elastic bands and the head was found a little further away, wrapped similarly. As the police combed the area for any more body parts or forensic evidence, they came across the scattered skeletal remains of a second body, this time of a man who had had several limbs wrapped in brown paper. Both sets of remains were determined by Gerber to have belonged to individuals between the ages of 30 and 40, and though both victims were thought to have been murdered some months before, it was concluded that they could only have been dumped two to three weeks prior to their discovery. With no cause of death able to be determined, and enough deviations from the previous ten bodies, there were some doubts that these were victims of the butcher at all. However, they did show signs, particularly of dismemberment and decapitation. One detail of note concerning their final dumping place was that the bodies had been left within plain view of Elliot Ness's very own office window. The press had a field day with the most recent finds, and they heavily criticised Ness for his inability to stop the butcher. Ness had to do something drastic and fast. On the night of August the 18th, just two days after the most recent discoveries of the bodies, Ness led a raid on the shantytown of Kingsbury Run. He took the small neighbourhood by storm with 35 police officers, 11 squad cars, two vans and three fire trucks. The fire trucks might have seemed out of place at first, but their presence was made apparent by what was to come next. Once Ness had rounded up the population of the shacks and meticulously searched the place, he ordered the entire squat burnt to the ground, a move which was as drastic as it was harsh. Unsurprisingly, he was heavily criticised by the press, who came down on him hard for the draconian measure. The Cleveland press ran a story that read, that such shantytowns exist is a sorrowful reflection upon the state of society. The throwing into jail of men broken by experience and the burning of their wretched places of habitation will not solve the economic problem, nor is it likely to lead to the solution of the most macabre mystery in Cleveland's history. As for the men who were evicted from the shantytown and whose makeshift homes were burnt, they were charged with being homeless. Rather dryly, to this they pleaded guilty. Despite the heavy criticism, and one can only speculate if it was a direct result of the raids or not, the butcher's reign of murder appeared, at least on the surface, to have ceased. The murders finished as suddenly as they had started. In January of 1939, a letter sent from LA to the Cleveland Press and addressed to Chief of Police Mantovitz was the final public call on the affairs of the butcher. It read, Chief of Police Mantovitz, You can rest easy now, as I have come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall astound the medical profession, a man with only a DC. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and disease-twisted bodies 
just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. No one missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I know now the feeling of Pasteur, Thoreau and other pioneers. Right now I have a volunteer who will prove my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. I have failed but once here. The body has not been found and never will be. But the head, minus the features, is buried on Century Boulevard between Weston and Crenshaw. I feel it is my duty to dispose of the bodies as I do. It is God's will not to let them suffer. This letter was signed off with an X and sounded suspicious at best. Nevertheless, the particulars were investigated, but no head had ever turned up in LA. Despite all of the forensic evidence recovered from the scenes of the 12 murders considered canonical by police, along with victim Zero, the Lady of the Lake, no killer was ever traced. There were, in fact, very few cast-iron suspects at all, a fact that remains until this day over 80 years later. At the time of the murders, suspects were numerous. However, only one was ever really nailed on for any of the investigators, and even then, it wasn't a unanimous line of thought. Unusually for such a historical case, this continues until today, and there is not a litany of suspects. In fact, it appears as if there were only ever really two, and it could be argued quite easily that realistically, there was only one who the leaders of the investigation believed as a serious suspect. Whether or not the suspect is particularly strong, or that the killer apparently did a very clever job of covering his tracks is a debate that still continues. One suspect was discovered whilst investigating the death of Edward Andrassy. Police found a photo negative which, when developed, showed Andrassy on the bed in an unknown room. Police tracked down the room after publishing the photo in the local press and found it belonged to a gay man who lived with his two sisters. Chases of blood were found on the floor of the room and a large butcher's knife was found stashed in a trunk. Upon further investigation, however, it turned out that the blood belonged to the suspect himself, who was prone to nosebleeds, and the knife showed no evidence of having been used in any murder. The final nail in the coffin for this line of inquiry was hammered home when police discovered the suspect had actually been in jail when victims were showing up around Kingsbury Run. This case is not uncommon in the story of the Torso murders, and numerous other stories of suspects that led nowhere are littered throughout. There were, however, some which had a little more substance. The first suspect arrested on charges of murder for the butcher killings was a man named Frank Dolezal. Dolezal, in fact, confessed to killing Flo Palillo. However, things with Frank were not quite as they seemed. Frank Dolezal was a 52-year-old Slav immigrant who worked as a bricklayer. He was found to have been, in general, an okay guy, but was prone to drink and at times became violent. He had drank frequently at the same bar as both Flo Palillo and Edward Andrassy. He had also lived with Flo for a couple of years. Dolezal had actually been investigated previously by Merlot, but rejected as a suspect. This time, however, the county sheriff decided, for whatever reason, that he had more promise and chose to have him arrested on the 5th of July, 1939. A brown substance was found in the cracks of his bathroom floor and it was theorised to be dry blood. He was promptly arrested and whilst in police custody, Dolezal confessed to the murder of Flo Palillo. However, his confessions lacked any great detail and many of the obvious facts of the case, such as location and position of the body. In fact, it appeared that he didn't know much about the body at all. He later recalled his confessions, stating that they had been beaten out of him whilst he was interrogated. Before his court appearance, Frank Dolezal was found dead in his jail cell, apparently from suicide by hanging, though his autopsy showed he had broken ribs, injuries he had not suffered before his arrest. Results had returned by this point of the substance found on the bathroom floor, and as it turned out, it was not blood at all. It all appeared to have been a very ugly side of the investigation, and the police were left no closer to finding a killer than they had been before the arrest and eventual death of Frank Dolezal. Before Elliot Ness's death in 1957, he worked alongside journalist Oscar Fraley, the man he would later collaborate with to write The Untouchables, a book detailing Ness's time fighting Capone in Chicago. 
Ness, however, told Fraley more than just stories about prohibition and apparently went as far as claiming to him that he had figured out who the mad butcher was. He was convinced that the killer was not homeless, despite Merlot's own convictions. He believed that he had had to have owned a house, or at least been associated with a private dwelling that he could utilise to carry out the murders, as well as clean all the bodies and dismember them later. He also believed he would have needed a car to transport the body parts before distributing them around Kingsbury Run. He also firmly believed the idea that the killer was likely to be a doctor or medical man. Following these points, he had three agents, Virginia Allen, Barney Davis and Jim Mansky, inquire quietly among the high society of Cleveland. Allen found a man that he believed fit the bill for Ness's and the Torso Clinic's earlier profile of the killer. Ness named the man to Fraley as Gaylord Sundheim. The name itself was a nom de plume, but the facts behind the name were that he was a relatively wealthy man and a doctor with a history of psychiatric problems. Over the years, the true name of Gaylord Sundheim has been teased out and unveiled as that of one Frank Sweeney, a resident of the Kingsbury Run area and the man that Ness firmly believed to be the killer. In March of 1938, in Sandusky, a town 65 miles west of Cleveland, a dog found the severed leg of a man. Police began a search of the area accompanied by Lieutenant David Cowles who was interested to know whether there might be any connection with this leg to the murders in Cleveland. Cowles recalled a surgeon that they had previously tailed and who lived in the Kingsbury Run area who had fit their profile of displaying unusual behaviour. This particular man had been eliminated as a suspect at the time for his frequent stays in a Sandusky veterans hospice where he would go to help with his drinking problem. His visits often overlapped with discoveries of bodies in Kingsbury Run and therefore he appeared to have a fairly watertight alibi. However, after further inquiries, Cowles discovered that in fact, the hospital had very little in the way of security and when patients were staying there, they were more or less free to come and go as they pleased. They had, after all, checked themselves in and it was certainly no prison. Cowles also discovered whilst in Sandusky that the hospice shared some facilities with Ohio Penitentiary Honor Farm and that one of the inmates there, Alex Archikai, was familiar with one of the frequent visitors to the clinic, a doctor who in exchange for a supply of alcohol wrote him illegal prescriptions. As it turned out, the severed leg was in fact the result of a legitimate surgery, however Cowles had a new suspect. The doctor's name was, of course, Frank Sweeney. Francis Edward Sweeney was born in 1894, the son of poor Irish immigrants. His father was badly injured and suffered enough that he was unable to work. His mother died when he was nine years old from a stroke. He was a veteran of World War I, where he had worked as a medic and undertaken numerous amputations on the field of battle. He had graduated medical school in 1928, years after he had begun his studies while simultaneously working to support himself and his family. Despite the difficult road he had undertaken to better himself, he excelled and was elected as vice president of his sophomore class. After his graduation, he took residency in St Alexis Hospital in the Kingsbury Run area, married a nurse and started a family with two children. The stresses eventually got the better of him, however, and he started to drink at roughly the same time he graduated. His wife stated that he drank habitually and this eventually led to his expulsion from residency at the hospital, as well as a separation from his wife in 1934. Their divorce was granted two years later in 1936, and she filed a restraining order against him, concerned of his violent and abusive outbursts. Equally of interest to the police was his lifetime spent in the Kingsbury Run area, granting him intimate knowledge of the layout, that he lived in Garfield Heights, near to the locations where several of the bodies had been found, his alleged bisexuality and a discovery that Sweeney's father had spent the final years of his life in an insane asylum after being diagnosed with psychosis. One problem with Frank Sweeney as a suspect, however, was the small fact of his cousin being Martin Sweeney, a local Democrat congressman and outspoken critic of the Republican administration. Clearly, any investigation of Sweeney needed to be discreet. Around the time the police were fishing out the limbs of victim 10 from the river, Cowles and Ness arranged for Sweeney to be followed. They searched his office and even his mail. 
After the drastic steps taken by Ness to burn down the shanty towns, he then went one step further and he pulled Sweeney off the streets, taking him to a room in a local hotel named the Cleveland and placed him under supervision for 14 days. When they did pick him up, he had been so drunk that the first three days were simply to allow him to dry out. But once sober, Ness got on with the job proper. He also arranged for Leonard Keeler, the man who invented the modern polygraph to attend the interrogation and bring along his machine. All of this Ness managed to undertake in complete secrecy. The men grilled Sweeney for a further 11 days and tested him with the polygraph test twice, both of which he failed on key questions. According to Keeler, Sweeney was their man, which he claimed confidently to Ness. Despite Ness firmly agreeing with Keeler and convinced of Sweeney's guilt, he had no evidence to take him to court and the doctor was likely to have been judged insane even if he had. Without any confession, which Sweeney was clearly not willing to give, he was forced to eventually let him go. Within a week of the interrogations finishing, Sweeney committed himself once again to the Veterans Hospital in Sandusky, where he lived out the rest of his days, bouncing from mental institution to mental institution until his eventual death in 1965. After the interrogation, Sweeney's mental health appears to have drastically deteriorated to the point he sent Ness postcards with cryptic and obscure messages. They are often filled out full of gibberish, and he signed them off with various names such as Paranoidal Nemesis. Whether or not Sweeney was the murderer, it is at least true that Ness must have had a fairly strong confidence in his guilt to have taken the steps to interrogate him for 14 days, locked in a hotel room. It can't be ignored that the murderers did stop around the same time too, at least if you agree that the canonical murders were the only murders. In August of 1938, a fascinating story was printed in the press concerning a homeless man named Emil Fronek. Fronek was, at the time, residing in Chicago, and he claimed that in 1934, before even the murder of the Lady of the Lake, he had been out begging a meal when a man picked him up and took him home to cook for him. He described the man as looking like a doctor, and his story went on. I was invited to sit down and my host went into another room. Soon he returned with the finest handout I was ever offered. Suddenly I began to feel sick at my stomach. I told this man about it and he said he'll get me some whiskey. He went into the other room again, but I was getting suspicious. I staggered out of the house and managed to get into an empty boxcar standing on a railroad siding not so far away. Some other men found me there three days later. I had been out all that time. There's no doubt that I was poisoned. And another fact which I stumbled onto later, after I began reading about all those Cleveland murders, convinced me that I might have been murdered too. I ran into another man and told him of my experience. He said, that's funny, I almost got caught up in that house too. He said that he had begged a meal there and he was treated just as I was, and by the same man. He didn't remember anything more after the meal until he woke up in what he figured was a private hospital. He had been cut across the abdomen and was slashed down the chest. He escaped from the hospital by jumping over a back fence. Fronek later claimed that he went back to find the doctor to fix him, but he could no longer locate his house. He also stated that he didn't hold much stock in the second man's story. He took too crazy for me to believe him, he said. Whilst the story sounds possibly far-fetched, Fronek was picked up by the police and driven around Kingsbury Run area to look for the doctor's house though once again he failed to recognise it. Nevertheless, it appears Ness himself believed Fronek, and also that he believed Fronek's guy to be Sweeney himself. One fact that does skew this, however, is that Fronek described the doctor in his experience as being 5 foot 6, while Sweeney was known to be 6 foot tall. It does stand, however, as an interesting epilogue to the case, and appears to at least have some merit if we're to accept that the police and Ness both bought Fronek's tale enough to pick him up in Chicago and bring him to Cleveland. The Torso murders are a grim and savage stain on the history of Cleveland. Ness never quite recovered from the criticism he took for his burning of the shantytown, nor his failure to capture the mad butcher, and he left the police in 1941. It's still debated today on how many murders should be treated as canonical, and whilst most accept that victim zero, 
the Lady of the Lake should be included, there are others who believe, like Detective Merlot, that the body count of the Mad Butcher lies much, much higher, linking him with over 24 murders in the Ohio and Pennsylvania areas and linking him even to the Black Dahlia. With a murderer who had such a loose MO and no motivations other than appearing to just enjoy chopping people up with no apparent preference to gender, age, sexuality or race, it was hugely difficult to gain any clear picture of who the murderer might have been and why he may have chosen his victims. After all these years, we can only trawl back through old records and deduce, much like Ness and Cowles, that Sweeney was the best suspect and possibly the Mad Butcher. If that's the case, then why and how did he get away with it all, even after such close interrogations from police? Some suggest deals may have been made to deflect attention from the family that led him to committing himself. Others suggest he was protected by his cousin, and there is always the possibility that he was in fact just an innocent, if somewhat troubled man with an alcohol problem. Theoretically, the case is still open, though there has been little effort to investigate further, and it's hard to see it ever being pursued after such a long, cold period. The Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run instead falls by the wayside, retold by few as a grisly tale of murder and mystery with no conclusion. Fascinating story. So yeah, thanks again to Jim for that one. Absolutely grim story. Pretty much gave me nightmares whilst I was researching it. But, you know, thanks Jim. I don't think I'm going to bang on too much this week because this is already a long episode. But just some things I thought, you know, worth chatting about at the end. Dolezal, I think that's probably a pretty horrible story of police brutality there. I think he perhaps wasn't guilty at all. Sounds like he was beaten, probably out of desperation on the police's part to find someone that they could pin it on. Um, There are stories that they wanted to pin it on someone quick to deflect the story away from certain other things that were going on politically around the time, but I'm not sure about that. I sort of left that because that seemed like it was a bit of a rabbit hole I didn't really want to go down, but it sounds very much like Dolezal was a poor suspect at best. Sweeney, however, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about him as a suspect. Comes across like a good suspect, doesn't he? But think about it. They tailed him so much. They went through his office. They went through his mail. Where was all the evidence? You know, he he never confessed to anything. You know, his, 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 his mental state clearly deteriorated quite a lot, especially towards the end when you see the postcards that he sent Elliot Ness. But I'm not sure, you know, if you think about it, if he was an alcoholic, which he clearly was, and they locked him up in a hotel room and they dried him out for three days and then they stood around interrogating him for 11, you probably would fail a polygraph, wouldn't you? I mean, that man's not going to be in much of a state to take a polygraph test, you wouldn't think. I mean, he's going to be sweaty, he's going to be shaky, he's going to be jittery. He's been denied a drug, essentially, that he's been addicted to for 11 days. He's not going to be in a good state, like physically. So you would assume that he probably would fail a polygraph. And even today, in better circumstances than that, they're not really infallible. So, I mean, the guy, Keeler, who made the machine, he he told Ness, you know, if if this isn't your man, then I may as well throw my machine out of the window now. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm fairly sure that's just what he said. I don't know. He's a good suspect, but I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. There's one source that I found that said that Sweeney had access to a funeral parlour opposite his house and that he might have used the facilities inside that to chop up and drain all the bodies, but I couldn't cross-reference it with anything and I only ever read it once and I wasn't really sure where they got their information from, so I sort of left it. But that's an interesting one, you know, that that would give him an out as to why they didn't find anything in his house or anything like that. But, yeah, I mean, to to a degree, he had an alibi if he was up in Sandusky. But they said he could have left, and and that's fair enough. It's only 65 miles. That's not far to drive. So, you know, he could well have come back, done the lead, and gone there and used it as a way to get himself an alibi. But 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was him. There's a book written by a guy called uh, Badal uh, called In the Wake of the Butcher. And it's been, that's the most modern book that I could find that was sort of considered good about the case. And that's been recently republished and updated sort of second edition. Badal, the writer of that, he, he firmly believes it to be Sweeney. And it's sort of accepted that he's very, very likely to have been the man. Badal himself admits that he can't say for 100% certainty that, you know, he's solved the case or anything, but, but he believes it very strongly that Sweeney's the man. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think he probably is. I think, you know, Badal's done an awful lot more on it than I have. So... You know, I'm going to go along with that. But, you know, sometimes these authors, they're very invested and it does make you wonder, you know, they have a lot of investment on their suspects. And sometimes they've obviously done a lot of research and they're clearly the authorities on a case. But there's also the possibility that they're very, almost too close. And if all it comes down to is sort of guesswork in the end, you've really got to take into account that he was an alcoholic locked in a hotel room and he probably was going to fail that polygraph. And not only that, but, you know, he he did have an alibi to a degree. I mean, it seems on the surface like a really strong alibi until you dig into it and then it all starts to fall away with the hospice not being very well, well, having no security, basically. And it, it does all sound, in his later life, sending Ness postcards. I mean, was he doing that almost out of a bitterness, like a sort of twisted bitterness? Like, oh, you, you trapped me in a room, so I'm going to annoyed you until I die or was he sort of saying you know was he sort of teasing this in a way was he I got away suck it I don't know so yeah I'm not sure really um but an interesting story and an in, definitely an interesting suspect I think probably if push comes to shove I'm gonna say yeah I, I agree with Badal and, and I do think he's more than likely the killer but there there are you know, certainly things that go against him as the killer, at least. Then you got Fronex's story. That was interesting. I think it's probably not true, but I think it's a good story. So I wanted to include it anyway. As, and that's along with the letter from LA. Um, again, I think that's probably not true. I think that's probably just a prankster sent a letter to, uh, um, to the newspaper. I mean, they did investigate the head and they didn't or, or the, the head that the letter said was buried and, and they didn't find anything so that's pretty much that so those are the kind of points to address I mean I want to keep this real brief because this podcast is already running long so yeah we'll just leave it at that if you want to talk about it anymore pop over on the discord because you know I'm always around there and we've got a small community there and people tend to talk about the episodes a little episodes like this I'm sure are going to kind of promote a little bit more chat than some others because it's, there's enough to talk about here so yeah if you you know if you fancy talking with me about it a bit more if you fancy talking about other people about it pop over to our discord you can find the links to that on our website darkhistories.com and then you go to the top click I think contact and there's a link to our discord there and that, that yeah it's, it's a nice little community anyway back to this and kind of the last thing that there are some people that believe he carried on killing. The saga of the Mad Butcher appears to continue. So, you know, if you're interested in going down that route yourself or say, come over and have a chat. If you've read about that, come over and chat and tell me all about it. Say, I didn't really get a chance to investigate it. So I ended it sort of at the canonical 12. But so there's plenty of people that believe that he kind of carried on and think they're mainly proponents of Merlot's line of thought that he was riding the rails and killing people. And he went on to kill people in Pennsylvania. But yeah, I think we'll stop it there. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, you know, if you want to find us, we're on all the social stuff. All the links are on my website, darkhistories.com. You'll find the links in the Discord there, plus all our social media. If you'd like to support the show, that would be amazing. Uh, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. If you're not sure what Patreon is, you can pay small recurring monthly donations. And Patreon really does, at this point, keep the lights on here. You know, the show's growing and I can't really sustain it by myself. Luckily, we've got some wonderful people that are helping. Uh, if you'd like to be one of those wonderful people, jump over there and support. If you can't or you don't want to support financially, it's no problem. 
share the show around as much as you can, slap it on Facebook, darkissues.com, and that's just as helpful. Reviews on iTunes, just as helpful. I'm not only sort of begging for your financial assistance, you can support it in other ways. Anyway, thanks very much again, as always, for listening. It's been wonderful having you. It was a little bit grisly this week. I hope you're not about to go to bed because that could give you terrifying nightmares. Trust me. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening as always. Sleep tight.